The scripture reading today is from John 5.44 through John 6.3. Hear the word of the Lord. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But, you do not, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or, Tib- or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs that he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Well, as we begin this morning, why don't we pray? Ask for the Lord to bless our time, to cause a great grace to come upon us that will uh, endear our hearts to Him more fully. Father, we do pray for that. We thank you for the gift that we have, Lord, of, of, of getting together with your people, those who call upon your name from a pure heart, and uh, to sing together with your people, or to sing your praises and to lift up before you uh, the uh, fruit of lips that give praise and thanks to your holy name. Father, it's always our greatest desire that in everything that we do and everything that happens around here and that everything that goes on in the world, that your name would be hallowed among us. And Father, this morning we pray that you would cause the sanctity and the holiness of your name to be manifest in in a real and powerful way. Our greatest need, Lord, is to sense and to know and to experience more of your holiness. That we might be uh, drawn after you as believers, that we would be drawn after you to be holy as you are holy. And if there are unbelievers among us, that they would be confronted in their unholiness by the richness and the fullness and the power of you who are holy. Lord, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ and we pray that you would bless your word to each one of our hearts this morning. Would you apply it in the exact way that each one of us needs it applied? Lord, would you draw our minds after you? Help us stop thinking about the world Stop thinking about the things of the world. Stop thinking about lunch or breakfast or anyone else, whether in or outside of this room. God, I pray that you would help us fix our minds upon Christ. Or that you would settle our hearts in you. That you would help us focus in on this portion of your word that you have set before us this morning. Lord, may you apply it and draw us after you with cords of kindness in ways that we can't even fathom. We love you. As always, we pray that you would help us love you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake, Father. Amen. All right. Well, the uh, title for this morning's sermon is Uh, the Lord Jesus is my shepherd. And if you notice, maybe on your outlines, the scripture passage that was read is a little bit different than the scripture passage that's listed. And um, I'll confess it was my intention all week long to move into John chapter 6 and cover verses 1 to 21. And I do think that we have a real shot at covering at least verses 5 to 21 next week. Um, the way that the Lord allowed those, uh, that passage to come together for me this week, I'm confident that we're going to actually make it through that many verses in one sermon next week. Uh, we'll see, though. It's always as the Lord wills, but um, that's my hope. Well, the scripture passage this morning that was read is a little different than what's listed because last week we did not finish, didn't come back to or reach that last point that I wanted to make from John chapter 5. Um, And so we're going to come back to that this morning before we get into John chapter 6. And we'll only get up through verse 3 of John chapter 6 today. 
Well, the reason, let me explain something about that title that I chose, The Lord Jesus is My Shepherd. If you notice there are brackets around Jesus, it means that I'm inserting that into a quote. And uh, I think everyone here knows where that quote comes from, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Where is that from? Psalm 23. That's right. Now, I've inserted the name Jesus into a quote from Psalm 23, verse 1, because of the connection that we find in John chapter 6 between the themes of Psalm 23 and what Jesus says and demonstrates about himself here in John chapter 6. What we find here is that both in Psalm 23 and in other passages that Jesus alludes to in John chapter 6, we, we find Jesus highlighting the shepherding qualities of Yahweh in relation to his people as it's revealed in the Old Testament. And yet he's not just speaking about Yahweh of the Old Testament, he's actually drawing a straight line, a, a point of connection between what the Old Testament says about Yahweh's shepherding of his people, his shepherding love, his shepherding care, his guidance, his protection, his provision, everything that the Old Testament says about Yahweh being a shepherd of his people, Jesus draws a line to himself and says, that is fulfilled in me. So both in what Jesus teaches in John chapter 6 and in what he demonstrates in John chapter 6, he's proving that he is Yahweh, the shepherd of his people, who has come to bring every aspect of God's shepherding love that's revealed in the Old Testament to its fulfillment in his life and ministry. And so as we're going to see in John 6, John 6 begins Christ's demonstration, really, of how everything written in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him, right? It's what he confessed in John 5, 39, that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, but, but it's these that testify about me, right? Jesus says, you search those scriptures, but you failed to see the point. You haven't made the connection. Those scriptures testify about me. Well, here in John chapter 6, and up until at least John chapter 15, we find Jesus explaining and demonstrating and maybe even showing his commentary on how the entire Old Testament finds its fulfillment in him. And it's going to be glorious as we see all those different aspects of fulfillment that's revealed to us in, in these chapters of John. And let me just point out here before we come back to the end of John 5, the, the practical implication of that and the most pressing application of that truth is simply this. That here, through Jesus' works and through his teaching, Jesus is showing us that the only way to experience all of the saving blessings of covenant relationship with Yahweh is to come to him and receive those blessings by faith. That's the main point. When he's standing before these, this crowd of people and he's causing them to be seated in a place where there's much grass you hear that echo of Psalm 23? He makes me lie down in, in green pastures. The Greek word there in the, in the Greek version of that psalm is uh, green grass. Here it says Jesus makes them lie down in green grass. And the word there for sit down is actually the word for reclining, lying down. He's making them lie down. As Jesus gives them bread and he provides for their want, their lack of food. And as he walks on the water to show that he is Yahweh who reigns supreme over his creation, he is the God whose footsteps are in the sea. He's the one who walks upon the high places of the, of the waters, right? And he's the one who brings his disciples to their desired destination. As, as we look at all of that, what we're seeing Jesus demonstrate before his disciples is that all of the saving, all the saving benefits and blessings that Yahweh promised to give to his people and to be for his people in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in this man of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. That's a glorious reality. I can't wait to get to next week. It really is full and rich. All right, but before we get there, I want to button up last week's sermon that was... Uh, seeking to close out John 5. And uh, just for review, let me remind you of what we saw in John 5. Last week we ended in John 5 looking at various reasons that, uh, that Jesus says these religious leaders in Jerusalem would not believe in him. 
why they would not come to him, that they might have life. Right? And, and we saw that mainly the main reason why they would not come to him is in verse 40, John 5, 40, they would not come to Jesus because they were unwilling to come to Jesus. They did not believe in Jesus because they did not want to believe in Jesus. It wasn't lack of proof. It was not lack of evidence. It wasn't lack of reasoning or logic or logical uh, explanation that Jesus is the Messiah. It wasn't any lack of demonstration that Jesus truly was who he said he was. It was simply a lack of desire in these Pharisees' hearts to recognize Jesus for who he is and come to him. Right? And as I said last week, that's the greatest obstacle that any sinner faces in coming to saving faith in Christ Jesus. You have to want to come to Christ for salvation before you will come to Christ for salvation. And in order to want to come to Christ for salvation, you have to recognize your deep need to be saved by the Lord Jesus. That's what these Pharisees failed to recognize. And then what we began to look at following that is, or, or are the two reasons that Jesus gives for why these Jews that he's speaking with in John 5 were unwilling to come to him. Why were they unwilling to come to him? They, they wouldn't come because they didn't want to come. But why didn't they want to come? Jesus gives two reasons for that. We saw the first one last week at the end, which was that in spite of all their religion and despite their searching of the scriptures, right, to, to know the will of God, despite all of that, they did not have a true love for God in their religion. Right? Jesus says that, um, I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. You know, Jesus could say that because as he goes on to show in these verses, they didn't have the love of God in themselves because they would not receive the one whom the Father loved, right? If you love God, you're going to love those whom God loves, right? This is why John says in the letter of 1 John, you, you can't say that you love God and at the same time have hatred and animosity and bitterness towards your brothers or sisters in Christ. Both of those cannot be true because if you love God, you are going to have a love for those whom God loves, Right? And, and that's, that's true whenever we're talking about our relationships in the church with one another. But ultimately, that's true when we're talking about our relationship with Jesus Christ. We cannot love God if we do not love the one whom the Father loves, the one whom the Father sent, and the one who bared the name or bore the name of the Father in our midst. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and says, I, I know that you don't have the love of God in you because you're rejecting the one whom the Father loves, and you, you won't come to me, that you might be saved. And so regardless of what they thought was true in their heart of hearts, right? I grew up down south. I grew up where the sinner's prayer was prayed multiple times at every service, it seems. You know, and just as I am, was played 20 different times at the end of the service while the pastor waited and begged and pleaded for someone to come down that aisle and just pray that prayer. Maybe you just need to rededicate your life. Will you come down and you pray that prayer too? I grew up in a context where that was the norm. And, and where people might come pray that prayer and then live a life of utter debauchery and unholiness with no regard for, for, for love for God or attending to his ways. And yet you confront them with that. And you say, you know, I know you say you love God, but... You don't really live your life in a way that shows that you love God. I mean, didn't Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? Right? Isn't, isn't love for God manifested through obedience to his will? I mean, in just parentheses there, right? that's just with any relationship, right? I can say that I love my dad, but if I spend, as a, as a kid, just pretend I'm a kid, okay, kids? All right. Let's pretend I'm back at home with my parents. If I say I love my mommy and my daddy, my mom and dad, Ma and Pa, if I say I love them, but I spend all of my time disobeying them and not doing what they tell me to do, then does it look like I love them? No, it doesn't. Would anyone looking at my life say, man, I can really tell, I can really tell, Benji, that you love your mommy and daddy because you are always disobeying them. That really shows me that you love them. Is that right? No, that's not right, right? 
If we love God, it's the same way with God. If we love our parents, we're going to obey our parents. We're going to trust them. And we're going we're to have this desire to do what's pleasing to our parents if we truly love them. It's the same way in our relationship with God. If we truly love God, then we're going to have as our ultimate concern a desire to be pleasing to him, to do the will of our Heavenly Father because he is our Father. Not, not, not some legalistic desire to earn our way into his favor, but some, just a desire to honor him as the God of grace who has saved us through Christ. So you go to someone. All right, all right so back to my context. I grew up, so that was a parenthesis within a parenthesis. I grew up in Tennessee where, where everyone has this idea, I prayed the prayer, I got my card stamped, I wrote the date in the back of my Bible when I prayed that prayer, and I'm good. My life is good. And you come, you watch their lives, and maybe it doesn't really show much love to God in their lives, and you come and confront that person with the fact that their life doesn't really manifest a, a true love for God, at least, at least not according to what the scriptures would say. And, and, and most often, more often than not, the, the, the response that I got back from someone that I talked to about that was, well, you don't know what's in my heart. In my heart of hearts, I love God. Yeah, I know I, I'm, I'm giving over to the sin. I'm a little carnal. I'm a little backslidden in this way. But, but, but down at the root, I really do love God. What do you say to that? How do you respond to something like that biblically? Is it appropriate to have that kind of category of Christian? That, that, it, that person has become a Christian so mightily that in their heart of hearts they truly desire and to love and honor and obey Christ, but in their lives they don't desire to submit their bodies and offer them as a holy and living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God. That's, that's a contradiction, right? And it really... It really um, declares the weakness of the Holy Spirit's work of saving you through Christ whenever you say that you can live a life that's totally ungodly and yet down in your heart of hearts still love the Lord. Anyway, regardless of what these Pharisees were saying about their relationship with God, that in their heart of hearts they loved him, Jesus could look at them and say, their actions betrayed what was true about them, regardless of their profession. So... So that's the first, man, this is all supposed to be recap. It's not supposed to be a sermon for today. But the first reason why they were unwilling to come to, to Jesus was because they had no true love for God in their hearts, in their religion. It was an empty shell of religion that denied the power of it. And then secondly, this is the one we didn't get to. Uh, they were, the second reason they were unwilling to come to Christ was because they were not seeking approval or praise or glory from God. They were too concerned with seeking the approval, praise, or glory of man. This is John 5, 44. John 5, 44, they sought glory from one another, and they did not seek the glory that comes from the only God. You know, there's a real danger in a religious devotion that's nothing more than devotees comparing themselves by themselves. That's what these Pharisees loved. That's what they craved. That's what they fed upon in their religion. That's what gave them power to keep being as religious as they were. What gave them a motivation to go out on the street corner and pray? Long and lengthy prayers, Jesus says in Matthew 6. What, what gave them a motivation to, to tithe even their cumin and their dill, right? I mean, who thinks about tithing their spices? I'm thankful you don't do that. We don't have anywhere to put your spices, right? <laughs> but obviously, there was a deep concern to, to move forward in a religious direction that they supposed was unto the Lord. And yet, yet here it says, Jesus, Jesus says it wasn't truly about seeking the approval of God, it was about seeking the approval of man. That's what they loved. That's what they craved. That's what, if you will, that's what they desired. That's what they were willing to have. Not faith in God's Messiah, but the praise and the approval of other people. I want you to notice what Jesus says there in John 5.44. Look with me there. Notice what he begins, notice how that verse begins. 
Jesus says, how can you be saved when this is what you're seeking? How can you be saved when you seek the glory of man and not the glory that comes from the only God? How can you be saved by God when your greatest concern is not doing what is pleasing to God? Now you understand what Jesus is getting at there, right? Jesus says they cannot be saved if they are more concerned about having the approval of men than they were about having the approval of God. Why not? That's a statement of ability, or if you will, that's a statement of inability. The word there in Greek could also be translated to say something like this. You don't have the power or the ability to believe so long as this is what defines you. Why is that? Why is that the case? Why is it impossible for someone to believe if their greatest concern is the praise of men? Well, I think that's because when your greatest concern is the praise of men and not the praise of God, you are betraying what your ultimate commitments are. Right? You're, manifest, you're, you're demonstrating what you are ultimately committed to. And in that scenario, what is that person ultimately committed to? What's that? I heard it. Himself. Himself. Right? This is, this is uh, the, the, the contrast of everyone in this world. You are either one who has submitted to the true and living God as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ, or you are still submitted to the idol of self. And everything is subservient to ministering unto the wants and the desires of that idol. Not only your stuff, but people, right? Everyone is subject to that idol of self until the sinner is brought to the point where they're humbled and made to submit to the true and living God. See, when you desire the praise of other people more than you desire the praise of God, then your God is not God, it's your God is yourself. And you're not after God's glory in your life, you're, 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 you're after your own glory in the eyes of other people. Now that was the reason why these Pharisees did not want to come to Jesus and why they had no love for God because they were too busy loving themselves, right? Satisfied. This is, this is the danger of that kind of religion. There's, there's this satisfaction and there's this power that comes from living in that echo chamber, right? And we see this in politics. We see this even in our own families. When families are divided, Everyone kind of huddles together with the other family members that agree with them, and they just kind of sit around the table, and they talk with one another in such a way that they're affirming each other. No one's ever right, uh, confronting anyone's thoughts, or maybe even in the church, when there's a, a divisive issue in the church, those who agree with each other kind of congregate together over here, and they all talk about those over there that they disagree with, and then those over here who disagree with them come over here, and they kind of affirm one another in their opposition to the other party. Right? That's... That's the danger of living a religion that is seeking nothing more than the praise of men. Comparing yourself by yourself and being satisfied with what you find in yourself, but never looking up to God to ask what he truly desires of you. Now, I don't need to spend much more time on this, but let me just apply that for a minute to our lives. Jesus says that it is actually impossible for these men to be saved so long as that is their desire. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24. You can't serve God and what? You can't serve God and money. Well, we can apply that same principle here, right? You, even so, you can't be a servant of God and at the same time be a servant of men in this sense. In God, in Christ, we're called to serve 
other people. We're called to lay our lives down in loving and sacrificial service, not only to our brothers and sisters in the church, but also to our enemies. We're to love them and we're to pray for those who persecute us and we're to give the other cheek to them in times of persecution and, and, and love them sacrificially the way Christ did. But in our service to them, if that service is nothing more than seeking their praise and their approval, then God will not be competed with in that kind of scenario. Right? Paul says in Galatians 1.10, you cannot be a servant of Christ if you're constantly trying to be pleasing in the eyes of men. I mean, don't we live in a day where that's being brought to the forefront over and over again? In your workplaces, you are being confronted with this ultimate um, allegiance. You will either be in allegiance to us as the world system, the the diversity, the equity, the inclusion model, the, the LGBTQ nonsense. You will either confirm that with us or you will be ousted. In that moment... Aren't, aren't Paul's words in Galatians 1.10, shouldn't they be ringing in your ears? I cannot be a servant of Christ and be a servant of the praise of men. I can't be seeking both of them. This is why the Christian life is costly and why each one of us has to be ready at any moment to pay the cost of being faithful to Christ. Right? I mean, that's, that's what, even, even among these Pharisees that Jesus is talking to here in John 5, did you know that there were some of them who actually were secretly believing in him? It says that in John 12, verses 42 and 43, that by that time, this is about a year later, a year after the event in John 5, by that time, there were some of these Jewish leaders who even had come to believe in Christ, but they would not confess it openly. Why not? Because of their fear of what the other Pharisees would think, their fear of the consequences that that confession would bring, and their desire to be respected in the eyes of their peers. That's that's all right there in John 12, 42 and 43. And you remember what Jesus said. It says that, well, let me, John 12, it says that because of their fear of what the Pharisees would think, their fear of the consequences of confessing Jesus, and their desire to be respected in the eyes of their peers, because of those things, they would not confess Jesus before men. And you know what Jesus says about that. If you confess me before men, I will what, Jesus says? I will confess you before my Father and before the angels in heaven. But if you deny me before men, Jesus says, I will deny you before my Father and before his angels. You see, you see the danger and like the real risk that you're taking when you let your desire for the praise of other people consume or, or disrupt or displace any desire you have in your heart to do what's pleasing to God? The the craving for the praise of other people is one of those great hindrances that keep many from being saved. You know the other side of the coin of seeking the praise and the glory of man? Do you know what the other side of that coin is? It's the fear of man. The fear of man. Because they come together. You can't, be, you can't be consumed with the desire to be praised by other people unless you fear what they think of you. Right? And this is Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man is a trap. It's a snare, and it's in contradiction to those who have hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is what we risk whenever we let our fear and desire for the praise of men displace our desire to be pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Our souls are at stake at that moment. Do you understand that? some, Some of us, some of us in this room need to stop thinking that our timidity to confess and to live openly for the sake of Christ is somehow simply related to our personality traits. Some of us need to stop 
excusing our timidity to be witnesses for Christ out in the world because we think that somehow we just don't have that kind of personality. Or I, don't, I wasn't raised in... Seth, come on, man. We know you're from down south. You guys are always more bold with each other than we are up in Minnesota. You can't expect us to be like your culture, can you? Well, I'm not talking about culture here. I'm talking about confession and obedience to Christ's commands. You need to, some of us, let me put it that way, because I'm not trying to say you and you and you. That's not what I'm trying to say. But we, we need to be on guard and stop excusing our timidity for Christ by attributing it to something else like culture or personality. We need to stop excusing our fear of man and our desire to be praised and accepted in everyone else's minds. We need to call it out for what it is. It's just a fear of man and it's a desire for the praise of man. That fear of what everyone else will think of you if you truly begin to live for Christ with radical abandon, radical abandonment, that fear will be the eternal death of your soul unless you repent of it. Don't, uh-uh, mm-mm. Don't think, don't think about justification in such a way that it causes you to minimize the need for sanctification in your life. Don't think that you are eternally secure in Christ unless the Spirit of God is bringing you into greater conformity to the image of Christ. Christ knew the cost of what it would be to live for the glory of his Father rather than the praise of men. Where did it end? They crucified him. And not even by happenstance, right? They purposed to crucify him. They directed their energies towards crucifying him. As Leonard Ravenhill would say, if they crucified and couldn't get along with the holiest man that ever lived, why can the world get along with you and me? Are we compromised? Have we no spiritual stature? Do we have no righteousness that reflects upon their corruption? My point is, there's no room for the fear of man in the Christian life. We must be those who are entirely sold out to living for the glory and the praise of God, doing what is pleasing in his sight. Now listen, this can infect you in so many different ways, but one of the most potent arenas if, if maybe, that's the right, maybe that's the right way to put that. One of, one of the arenas in which this temptation comes upon us most powerfully is right here. Right here in the church. Where we can be more concerned about what we think of one another than we are about God, what God thinks about our lives and our service to him. We need to repent of that. That will be the death of our souls if we don't. Eric Marshall, when did I start preaching? This, this morning. This morning. Okay. Maybe the right answer is, when did you stop? All right, so if, if we're not actively recognizing and turning from this fear of man or from this desire to be praised by man and we're not cultivating greater fear of God than we are than, of man, then Jesus' words to the Pharisees will be his words to us. How can you believe when your greatest concern is being praised and accepted by men and you court their favor, playing for their applause, rather than living for the smile of God and doing what's pleasing in his sight. So that's that second reason why these Pharisees would not believe in Jesus, because they had different priorities than living a life that was love, of loving, a life of loving service to God, seeking his approval. Now we come to John 6, and I'm going to do my best not to rush this, but I, I do want to get to the main point here in John 6, 1 to 3. In John chapter 6, we continue to see Jesus disclosing to us the glory of his person, right? That's what we've said is happening 
here in John chapter 5 through John chapter 12, the specific focus is on Jesus disclosing the glory of who he is to each one of us. And so in John chapter 6, we see that continue to take place, and there are three main segments in John chapter 6 that we'll notice as we walk through the chapter. The first two are the first two signs, or the two signs that Jesus does that express who he is. Right, so there are two signs in John chapter 6 that express the glory of who he is. And then the third section of John chapter 6 is a lengthy explanation of who he is in light of those signs. So three different sections, two signs and an explanation. We'll see that as we go. And in the broader context, what we see in John 6 is Jesus beginning to demonstrate and explain in various ways how everything in the Old Testament points to him. So you'll notice as we walk through this chapter, you'll notice a reference to Moses. You'll notice references to Old Testament passages, uh, especially in the Psalms. Um, you'll notice the discussion of manna. You'll notice the discussion of Old Testament law. And eventually we'll even get to references to Abraham and different feasts in Israel and how Jesus fulfills them all. All of those are pointing us to this fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. We're going to see that as we go through the Gospel of John. Now, as we, as we move into this, like I said, let's move into John chapter 6, verse 1. Before looking at those miracles and before getting to Jesus' explanation of those miracles and what they mean about who he is, let's look at some introductory matters that John sets before us in the first three verses of John 6. All right, in John 6, verse 1. It says that after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. Now, after these things, obviously that's talking about after the events that were recorded in John chapter 5. And this is probably somewhere between six to nine months after what happened in John 5, after those events took place. So somewhere around six to nine months after John chapter 5, Jesus crosses this sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Now, we don't, John doesn't really focus much on the Galilean ministry of Christ, and there's a reason for that, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend most of their time focusing on what Jesus was doing in Galilee. Why doesn't John do that? John spends the majority of his time talking about Jesus' ministry in Judea and in Jerusalem. Why does he do that? Any thoughts? Just shout them out. No one wants to be wrong. What's that? Salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. And so beginning from Jerusalem and then moving outward to the rest of the nation. Yeah, we've seen that pattern in John chapter 2, John chapter 3, and John chapter 4, right? Why else? Because the other accounts have already been written. And they all focus on the same material from different vantage points, Right? Well, John's not writing something that's going to cover the same material. He's writing something that will complement what's already been written. He's writing decades later, decades after the, the, the synoptic gospels, as they're called, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's writing decades after those books had been written and had been distributed among the churches. Now John's bringing this witness, this gospel of John, a witness and testimony to the life of Christ that will come alongside and give greater clarity and greater vision to the glory of Christ that was revealed in his life and ministry. And so it's, what we're going to see in John 6 is that though, though John picks up on a miracle that every single one of the gospels talks about, he's going to, the feeding of the 5,000, John picks up, all the other gospel accounts pick up on that as well, but John focuses our attention on specific details that the other gospel accounts don't focus on. So he's complimenting what's already been given. Now, why is the Sea of Galilee called the Sea of Tiberias? Maybe some of you read that and you thought, huh, I wonder why that's the case. That's how I think about the scriptures whenever I read through the scriptures. I wonder, why was it called the Sea of Tiberias? I've never heard another gospel writer write that. Well, I found that out, and I'll give you the answer for those of you who are interested. Those of you who are not, just be patient, and uh, we'll move on to something more interesting in a minute. Somewhere around AD 20, Herod Antipas established a city that he called Tiberias on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is the same Herod who put John the Baptist to death, okay? So he established this city, and he named it Tiberias, and does anyone want to know why he named that city 
Tiberius, or can you guess why he named it Tiberius? Yeah, the, 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 the reigning Caesar, the emperor at that time. His name was Tiberius. And so here you have Herod really showing his colors, right? He's, he's, he's showing his hand. Where, where are his ultimate allegiances? Even though he's a king in the promised land and is supposed to be serving the interests of God and his people, yet he's establishing the city and building it to the glory of the emperor who claimed to be the supreme God. Real problem there. Well, anyway, so he establishes this city called Tiberias, and eventually throughout the Roman Empire, the Sea of Galilee became known as the Sea of Tiberias. And remember who John's writing to. He's not writing to those who were living in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Galilee at the time these events took place. He's writing his gospel to be more broadly disseminated. And, and so what does, what does a, a Gentile believer in Ephesus know about any of the details of the lands of Judea and Jerusalem? In, in Galilee. He doesn't know anything, unless he's traveled there, but most people hadn't. So he's writing these kinds of details in order to, to reach a broader audience, right? It is called the Sea of Galilee, but he refers to it as Tiberias so that people who aren't familiar with that terminology would connect the dots and they would know what he's talking about. Just a really, I don't have time to apply that, but that has great application for how we seek to minister to people in our, in our world. Um, how we seek to present the truths of the gospel to them, finding areas of commonality where we can speak the truth to them uh, using their own concepts and language. Uh, anyway, that's a different discussion for Van Til to have with you, and, uh, and I, won't, I won't have that with you now. Well, Jesus crosses over the sea, and in verse 2 it says that a large crowd followed him. And John gives us the specific reason for why this large crowd was following him. It's because they saw the signs which he was performing. Now, we know how big this crowd was. Uh, John and the other gospel accounts, they, they make mention of this, including this crowd being made of about 5,000 men, not including the women and children. So conservative estimate would be somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 people following Jesus around the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. Now, that might not be as significant in our day. I mean, I just went to a University of Michigan football game a couple weeks ago where there were 109,000 fans packed into that stadium, right? I mean, 109,000, that, that seems like a lot. But you look around and you think, wow, are there really 109,000 people here? It doesn't seem like that much. Well, we have a different perspective than what people may have had in this day. 20,000 people traversing the shoreline of Galilee, walking nine miles to try to keep, to try to catch up with Jesus who was sailing across the lake, that's going to draw attention, right? They're going to pick up more people as they go, just, just people being assimilated into that great crowd. Like, where are you guys going? Whoa, 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 what's going on? Hey, man, we're going to see Jesus, the miracle worker. Come on, and bring your sick folk too, because he's a healer, right? And so they, this large crowd following Jesus around the shore of of Galilee, this, this, this Sea of Tiberias, and they were doing that because they saw the signs that Jesus was doing. Now, we learn in the other gospel accounts that specifically what Jesus was doing is he was healing the sick, and he was healing the sick because he looked upon the crowd with compassion. He had a loving concern for this crowd that was following him. But, but here in John, when John starts talking about people following Jesus because they saw signs, our antennas should be going up, right? And what should we be discerning? Okay, they might be following Jesus, but it's not out of true faith, right? We've already seen that in John chapter 2. We saw that in John chapter 4. We see that in John chapter 5. We saw that in John chapter 3. They may be following Jesus. They may be intrigued by Jesus, but they're following him for the wrong reasons, their faith is not resting upon his person, they're resting upon his miracles. So John tells us that they were following because of his miracles, and that signals to us that they're not following him because they have true faith. They're following him because they've been intrigued by what they've seen. Now, some people only seek Jesus because of the signs and the miracles that they think he can do for them. It was true in that day, and guess what? It's true today as well. Some people only seek the Lord and they only try to live a godly life in obedience to His will because they think that's the key to getting their bills paid. 
That's the key to having a healthy marriage. That, that's, the, that's the means in order to get something that I want, right? And what you want may not be a bad thing. It is a good thing to have a healthy marriage. And Jesus Christ and his principles of living do lead to people having healthy marriages. If you're following the will of God revealed in the word, then guess what? You are going to have a kind of work ethic that enables you to work hard and make enough money to support your family. Your, your bank account is going to be full in, in, an, in a sense that you will have enough to share with others, right? This is Ephesians chapter 4. Let those who steal, steal no longer, but rather go work so that they might make some money and then have some to share with those who are in need. That just living a godly life leads to those kinds of ends. But if the reason that you're seeking Christ is in order to attain those ends, and that's it, then your faith is false. I remember so many preachers, again, down south. I hate to make so many references to down south. Maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm missing my homeland a little bit. But that's a good thing. So many preachers down south, they appeal to people, come to Jesus and he's going to fill your bank account. Come to Jesus. He's going to fix your marriage. Come to Jesus, and you're finally going to have that job you've been waiting for, that car that you want. That's nothing other than the health, wealth, prosperity gospel garbed up in different robes. Anybody will take a Jesus who's willing to bow down to their wishes. Right? And in fact, isn't that the reason why people don't come to Jesus? Because Jesus will not bow down to our wishes. He demands that we submit to his will. That requires dying to self, doesn't it? Getting on the cross, laying yourself down and saying, Lord, crucify me with you, that I might truly live with you. You know, you don't have to be born again, and you don't have to have been raised by the Holy Spirit from spiritual death to new spiritual life in order to be moved by miracles. Or in order to be enamored and wowed by a miracle worker. People have always been intrigued by the supernatural. Right? And that's a lot of what's behind this discussion with, I mean, there's all kinds of supernatural nonsense shows on like the, his, the Ah History Channel. Right? It's not the History Channel anymore. I, think, I don't know when it stopped being the History Channel, but it was a long time ago. Now it's the Speculative Channel. Or even the, the fascination with uh, UFOs and UAPs now. Yeah. Demonic activity. That, that is all demonic. Hope you know that. Um, talk about that another time. People have always been intrigued by the supernatural. But that's not the kind of faith that Jesus accepts, is it? How does Jesus respond to this crowd that's seeking him because they saw him doing signs and wonders? Look at verse 3. Does he stick around and rub elbows with them and try to be that, that nice, friendly, big-smiled guy that gets all of them to keep following him. That's not how Jesus responds to them. He withdraws, doesn't he? He goes up the mountain. Now, mountain is maybe not the best word, but from the, the shoreline of the, the Sea of Galilee, it sure looks like there are mountains next to the lake or the sea. right? It's the, the Golan Heights. So it... it it's this sharp incline up from the shore of the Sea of Galilee up to this plateau, the Golan Heights. Jesus is climbing up that mountain in order to get away from this crowd that's only seeking him for their own selfish desires. And we're going to come back to that later on in John chapter 6. But what I want to point out here as we close, though Jesus withdraws from that crowd, who does he draw near to? His disciples. So for some reason, his disciples either weren't in that crowd or they came away with Jesus away from the crowd. Right? But either way, Jesus went up to be with his disciples. And notice the word that it says there. When Jesus went up the mountain to be with his disciples, it wasn't so that Jesus could give them an object lesson. It wasn't so that Jesus could teach them some new doctrine. What does it say there? Jesus went up the mountain to do what with his disciples? To sit with them. Just to sit with them. I want to point out something to you as we close. 
Jesus' greatest desire for you is not for you to go do some great work for him. Jesus' greatest desire for you is that you would sit and be with him and have fellowship with him in his presence. So often we can be the Martha, right? We can be the Martha, we're serving, we're making sure all the dishes are clean and presentable and we're making the meal because Jesus is in the house. We want, we want the house to be presentable. We want this church building to be immaculate because, hey man, this is where Jesus comes to be with us. So everybody, let's get busy doing works. And then you get a little resentful at those who aren't doing as much work as you feel that you're doing, right? You're that Martha getting resentful at Mary. But what does Jesus say to Martha? She, he says, Martha, Martha, you are so concerned and busied by, by unnecessary things. There's only one thing that's necessary. As for Mary, she has chosen the good portion and it will not be taken from her. What was that good portion? What was Mary doing? Sitting at his feet, listening to his words. It's the two things it says there in Luke. Sitting at his feet, listening to his words. You know, Jesus doesn't want you to do anything for him until you've done that with him. How much time do you seek drawing away from the crowds and the things of the world in order to draw away just to be with Jesus? There will never be an end to the kind of service or duties that we might be able to do that might be categorized as good and for the sake of the kingdom. There will never be an end to activity that the church can engage in. But none of that activity is going to matter a hill of beans if you're not first fellowshipping with Christ and having your soul filled with Him. You can give yourself to all kinds of activity and a lot of times it's easy to do that. You can. You can, give your, you can busy yourself with all kinds of stuff that looks spiritual, that look like things that Christians ought to be doing, but eventually... Even if you start doing those things with a full heart, eventually the reservoir is going to run out of reserves. Right? The well's going to go dry. The bucket's going to be empty. You're not going to have any more water in the glass. If you're going to do things for the sake of the kingdom that will be effective and that will truly bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, it must flow out of a genuine communion and fellowship with Him. And you can't take shortcuts in order to experience that. There's no five-minute devotional secret that'll give you the kind of filling with Christ. There's, there's no uh, streams in the desert or Jesus calling type s- stupid devotionals. There, there, there's nothing like that that's going to fill your soul with the power of Christ or the fellowship and joy of communing with Christ. It takes time to draw away from the world and to be with the Lord. It's not something you can just throw together in 15 minutes in the hurriedness of your life that somehow you're just going to fit Jesus into that busy schedule that you have loaded upon yourself. Spirituality doesn't work like that, guys. The Christian life does not progress and advance like that. Some of you wonder why you're not as spiritually mature as you want to be. Let me ask you, how much time are you sanctifying to go and be alone with Jesus? Are you you leaving your phone outside of that mountain area where you go to be with the Lord? Are you getting off the computer I don't don't care if you say, well, I read my Bible on my phone. I read my Bible on my computer. Stop it. Just get, just go to books. Get a hardback, leather-covered, paperback copy of the Scriptures and go be alone with Christ because all those other things have so many opportunities to tempt you from being focused on what's most important. Christ. George Mueller, George Mueller said, it is my primary duty every day to get my soul happy in the Lord. Oh, I agree with that. I agree with that. 
I don't know that there's a single day when I wake up with my soul automatically happy in Christ. It's like it all has to be recalibrated all over again every single day. Or Martin Luther, right? Someone asked Martin Luther, when someone asked him uh, what his plans were for the day, he said, uh, my plans are work and then more work from morning until late. In fact, he says, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. You know, we don't have that mentality. We think, I've got so much to do today, I can't afford to sacrifice three hours in prayer? We, we don't sing sweet hour of prayer anymore because none of us do it. We don't know the sweetness of an hour of prayer being alone with Christ or those of us who do know what that's like, we're not pursuing it the way we ought to. Your first business every single day ought to be to make sure that your soul is satisfied with fellowship in Christ. That's what Christ wants from you. He draws away from the crowd to go be alone with his disciples for that reason. Because he's about to call them to do something that's going to require them to have enough faith in him to obey what he commands them to do. But before that can come, they have to find refreshment for their souls in the Lord. Let me just end on this. John 15, 5. I am the vine. What are you? You're nothing but a branch. Praise the Lord. Right? You're not the vine, which means you're not the one in charge of bearing fruit in your life. You're not the vine, therefore you're not the one expected to cause the fruit to come out. Here's what you are expected to do, to recognize that you're nothing more than a vine and to stay firmly attached to Jesus Christ. Because the more you abide in him, the more his life will flow through you and you will bear fruit for the glory of his name. All right, <laughs> one more thing. <laughs> like, that, like that hymn, take time to be holy. You gotta have, you have to make time to be holy if you're going to be holy with Christ. Let me just read some of the words from that hymn. Take time to be holy, speak off with thy Lord, abide in him always, and feed on his word. Take time to be holy, the world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. Verse 4. Be calm in thy soul, each thought and each motive beneath his control. Thus led by his spirit to fountains of love, thou soon shall be fitted for service above. Where does your, where does your fitness for ministry and service and for the kingdom of Christ come from? It comes from abiding with Christ, and that's it. Some of you are too busy. Purposefully so or not, doesn't change the fact that you're too busy. Some of you are just distracted because you're giving yourself to too many other things. You're giving yourself to too much entertainment. You're watching too many movies. You're going out to too many restaurants. You're doing too many side activities. You need to just cut things out and just simplify your life. Just find a place where you can go be alone with Christ. He swears, you draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Let's take him at his word and believe in his promise and draw near. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this life that you've called us to live. Thank you for the freedom of that life and the glory of that life. Lord, I thank you for the hope of that life that we're not living in this world alone. We're not, we're not called to walk the Christian life out in our own strength. We're simply called to abide in you while you provide the strength and the grace that we need to work for your glory. So, Lord Jesus, help us take the lesson and draw away from the crowd, and draw away from the world, and draw near to you to be with you alone. Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would show us what you showed these disciples, that your desire is indeed to be with your people in that way. So bless your people, Lord. Convict them where they need to be convicted, but give them hope to move forward and to order their steps according to your will.
God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hear a benediction from Jude 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. We go forth waiting and laboring to stay, to keep our minds fixed on his love. May the Lord give you grace to do that this week. May you rest in his love for you as you go.